Not all fan bases are created equal. Last season, at the end of our two-part series on the first eight albums from the original lineup of Black Sabbath, I tried to make that point by putting Sabbath's musical legacy side-by-side side with that of the Rolling Stones. I'm sure Keith Richards would be none too pleased by the comparison as he doesn't much care for Black Sabbath. But he also doesn't much care for the Rolling Stones. The guy is kind of a cottage industry for Guitar.com articles in which he complains on such subjects as Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Beatles, Mick Jagger, classic rock, contemporary rock, hip-hop, all the other genres of music, and the eternal life-giving source of all creation on our planet, the sun. In fact, the only thing that Keefe really seems to care about these days is sucking every last quid out of the world's money tit and absolutely owning Halloween next year as Mother God from the Love Has One cult. I was going to go with Mumra from Thundercats for that joke, but I just updated my Dead Things Keith Richards Resembles Google Doc, and I thought I'd try out some new material. How's my driving? At AV4APod. The point I was trying to make is that while there are many casual fans of the Rolling Stones, of which I am more or less one, it's far less likely that you are going to find comparatively casual fans among the throngs of Sabbath's cult-like followers. Come, my fanatics. But as a thought experiment, I want you to imagine that after the Stones released two subpar records, say, Tattoo You in 83 and Undercover in 86, Mick Jagger decided to leave the band and was replaced by one of his contemporaries, one with an established but less established than Mick Jagger pedigree as a frontman. Let's say Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. Stay with me. While that lineup change would no doubt represent a shift in the band's future musical direction, in a weird way, I could kind of see that choice working. But I'm going to go ahead and let you decide for yourself. So yeah, it's not awful. Not more awful than the original, anyway. It's a low bar, but I think Steven Tyler clears it. So how about Rod Stewart? Can you conjure the sound of Rod Stewart doing vocal duties on Street Fightin' Man? Humor me. Close your eyes and imagine the gentle rasp of the former Faces frontman and his rendition of that classic Stones track. Can you hear it, Mother Punchers? Can you hear it? Can you? Can you? Can you?
How the fuck did you do that? Okay, listen. No more shining during the podcast, alright? We just got rid of Baal, y'all. I need more malevolent spirits on this episode like I need an axe to the chest, so just stop it. Anyway. It might just be my admittedly casual affinity for the stones, but I kind of dig those tracks. And I would guess that I'm not entirely alone. Tyler and Stewart are both uber-charismatic and far more capable vocalists than Mick Jagger ever was. Also, the distinguishing characteristic of the Rolling Stones as a band isn't that they were innovators in the same way that Sabbath were. The Stones, to paraphrase Sir Paul McCartney, were the world's greatest blues rock cover band. Oh, hold on. I want John to say it too. The world's greatest blues rock cover band. And Ringo. The world's greatest blues rock cover band. And, of course, George. Well, he was the quiet one. Sorry, back to the Stones. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones were the premier interpreters of the blues rock genre, and they were frequently great at it for at least two decades. Sabbath were interpreting blues rock as well, but every aspect of that interpretation came in the form of a consistently heavy and decidedly downward trajectory. Conventionally and thematically, Sabbath went so deep and so dark, at least in those first four records, that blues rock no longer applied as an apt description of that music. Through a mixture of accidental and deliberate genius, Sabbath, as I argued in episode one of this pod, managed to create an entirely novel category of music. Blues rock, as a genre, is defined by a series of well-established musical conventions that date as far back as the American Civil War in 1865. Heavy metal, by contrast, was born arguably over a hundred years later in 1970. So to my mind, it would be infinitely easier and more acceptable to a fanbase to plunk a new lead singer into an existing band when both singer and band share a century of history and vernacular, a common palette of colors from which to paint, than it would be to put fucking anyone into a heavy metal band less than a decade after the genre was created. And in 1978, that is the very void into which Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward found themselves staring. And sometimes you just get hooked and you can't stop staring. But Baby got back to the subject. Where better to stare into the face of hopeless inevitability than the City of Angels herself, Los Angeles? Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. According to the book Louder Than Hell, the definitive oral history of heavy metal, <laughs> oral, in an effort to jumpstart the creative process in hopes of writing a follow-up to their eighth album, Never Say Die, Black Sabbath rented a house in L.A. where they started working on new music. Or 75% of Black Sabbath did, anyway. Ozzy was working on a new solo project called Dying where he disappeared for six weeks to do nothing but drugs, and when he finally did start to show up again, he was too fucked up to actually sing. And I don't know if you've done as many drugs as I have, but just to give you an idea, in my early 30s, I was personally responsible for roughly 5% of the Colombian national GDP, and yet, I have never in my life been too fucked up to sing. In fact, it was often the only form of communication left to me. So Ozzy was in a bad way. And as Iomi recalled in Louder Than Oral, I'd have to go to Warner Brothers, and they'd say, how's the album coming? And I'd go, oh, great, great. I had to face those people, knowing full well that we didn't have anything to play them. 
it got to the point where the other guys said, well, look, if we don't do anything, we're going to leave. So that was the decision between the three of us. We said we were going to have to replace Ozzy. Ah, see? It was the other guys, Bill Ward and Geezer Butler, who made Iomi fire Ozzy. But when it came to do the actual firing, Iomi knew what he had to do. So he met face-to-face with his childhood friend and brother and spoke what had to be some of the most difficult words that he had ever uttered. Bill, you have to fire Ozzy. And yet, for some reason, it was Iomi who received the brunt of Ozzy Osbourne's ire. In his memoir, I Am Ozzy and So Can You, Osbourne said that he felt Iomi was punishing him after disappearing for two full months by making him do multiple takes in the studio like some kind of professional vocalist. And he concluded the tale in I Am Ozzy and Influence People, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel betrayed by what happened with Black Sabbath. We were four blokes who'd grown up together a few streets apart. We were like family, like brothers. And firing me for being fucked up was hypocritical bullshit. We were all fucked up. You're telling me I'm fired because I'm slightly more stoned than you are. Ozzy, no one has ever been slightly less stoned than you are. We are all a distant second, bud. For Dio's part, the days that followed his dismissal from Rainbow were even more dire. In an interview with Fox News, Wendy Dio said that after they relocated to Los Angeles, the Dios had approximately $800 in the bank. The rest of his earnings, Fox News then forced her to repeatedly deny, were hiding in Hunter Biden's laptop, saying, We used to have a big house and a big car. Everything was paid for by the management. Then he wasn't in Rainbow anymore. We didn't have anything. My grandmother left me a little inheritance. We basically took that and drove 3,000 miles to California where we knew more people. I wonder if they took the Dave Mustaine trail of tears, but like in reverse. It's not funny, you fucking poser. Hey, Dave. Come on, man. Give me a break. Hey, hey, hey. One break. Coming up. Okay. But upon a chance meeting at the House of Sabbath's manager, Don Arden, Dio was introduced to Iomi by none other than Arden's daughter, Sharon, future wife, manager, and attempted murder victim of Ozzy Osbourne. It was at that event that Tony Iommi, apparently unable to locate Bill Ward, approached Dio directly, saying, I'm in a terrible situation. I don't think it's going to work anymore with what we've got. Would you be interested in doing something else? And after declining Iomi's offer to join his flagging City League basketball team, Dio agreed to go into the studio to work on a song with Iomi's band, A Black Sabbath. But that moment of heavy metal destiny would be delayed for several months until Sabbath finally got word from Osborne that he was, in fact, not returning to the band. I'm not sure why they were waiting for someone who they had fired to confirm they weren't coming back, but if that's the industry standard, then I have like three jobs just waiting for me when I get back to New York. Finally, one day, Dio got a call from Iomi, inviting Ronnie to his house for a jam session. Though, Ronnie swore it sounded like someone doing an Iomi impression while being fed mumbled monotone lines to say by someone else in the background. Who knows? Iomi said he got a good laugh when Ronnie showed up to his house the next day and got out of his Cadillac with the seat adjusted all the way forward, which is kind of shitty because that feels like my observation to make, but whatever. I'll let you have this one, Tony Baloney. It was at Iomi's house that Dio met with the rest of the band, Geezer Butler and Bill Ward, upon which Dio shouted, I recognize that voice, when Ward immediately leaned in and whispered, Please, I can't go back to the cage. He'll kill us. He'll kill us all. Whatever that means. So after playing through some rather revealing rounds of Two Truths and a Lie and Never Would I Ever, 
Iommi played a song he had written for Ronnie, but as Dio told the story in the book Oral Than Words, Iommi had, quote, nothing to go with it. I said, give me a minute, and went into the corner and started writing down the words. Then we recorded it. When we played it back, it was obvious to both of us, we really had something there. That song would eventually find its way onto Black Sabbath's ninth album, released in the year of my birth, 1980, as the second track off of the first record to feature Ronnie James Dio on lead vocals. And here it is, Children of the Sea. In the misty morning, on the edge of time, we've lost the rising sun, a final sign. As the misty morning rolls away to die, reaching for the stars, we blind the sky. to tell you that I have been a little bit nervous about this song ever since I started thinking about doing a series on Dio. As I'm recording this, I can physically feel you listening to this and waiting for the punchline, which is entirely a hell of my own making, but there actually isn't one this time. I know. I know. I have lured you in a million times in the past two seasons with an anecdote or a song intro that turns out to be a very lengthy and self-indulgent way to build expectations, only to pull the rug out from underneath us for the sake of a joke about Robocop or something equally stupid. But I feel like we know each other well enough now that I can do something on this podcast that I don't often feel comfortable doing. But I have forced myself through decades of actor training to the point that I have now learned how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I can't promise that the next few minutes will be joke-free, because that's like putting a wounded baby gazelle in front of a mother lion and saying, stay. But Lucy has decided to actually let Charlie kick the ball this time, and I understand if you don't believe me, because I am, above all things, an unrepentant liar. But this story is the truth, and I believe it's the best way for me to demonstrate Ronnie James Dio's invaluable gift for crafting emotionally resonant, universally human stories through his music. So this is a personal story, but my hope is that what you will hear is not just my story, but the story of the millions upon millions for whom Dio is not just the other guy in Black Sabbath. 
but a truly indispensable and visionary artist whose legacy reaches well beyond the bounds of heavy metal and into the heart of why we humans began making art in the first place. I have two kids. One is about to turn seven, and the other is about to turn three. I often refer to them in public posts on social media and elsewhere as Kid A and Kid B, for obvious reasons. Privacy and my love of Radiohead cheap among them. But my wife and I actually had three children. And before you wince, I asked her if it was okay to talk about this in the podcast, and she gave me her full blessing. Also, she doesn't listen to this, so even if she said no, I'd still be in the clear. But sometime after Kid A turned three and we decided to keep him, we also decided that we wanted to try to have another, which is just code for us doing it. I know, it seems very out of character considering what you know about me, but it did happen, and I have the video to prove it. I'll post it on Twitter shortly after the episode's published. Around the ninth week of her pregnancy, we went to have an ultrasound and brought our son so that he could hear his baby brother or sister's heartbeat. He decided that the baby would be named Yarmini at that point, and one of the few rays of light in this story is that we never had to tell him that that just wasn't going to happen. But after what felt like an eternity of silence as the sonographer tried in vain to find a heartbeat, she excused herself, leaving the room to get the doctor. That hot, sick, sinking feeling my wife and I felt slowly building in the pit of our stomachs as the minutes passed, we're beginning to feel horribly justified. As I'm sure you suspect at this point, the doctor came into the room and told us that our second child's heart had likely stopped a few days earlier, and my wife would have to schedule an appointment to have what is known as a DNC, or a dilation and curatage, to have the non-living tissue removed from her body. Kid A was fortunately too young to remember why we went to McDonald's for lunch that day and why his mom and dad didn't eat, but just kind of stared off into the middle distance as he enjoyed a menu item with the rather poorly chosen title of Happy Meal. But a few months later, my wife was driving around with my son in the back of the car, and he wanted to listen to a playlist of Dio Sabbath songs that I had made for him, which contained this track, Children of the Sea as it was one of the first songs that, after many years of resistance, made me fall in love with Sabbath 2.0. When my wife came home from the drive, she was really emotional, but not necessarily merely sad. It was that kind of flood of emotions that happens when a person has processed a deeply significant experience in a new way, a necessary stage in the very long journey toward healing. The truth is, there are certain losses that I don't believe you can ever get over. Either time simply and mercifully moves that loss further away from you so that your experience of trauma revisits with less frequency, or you find a way to incorporate the ugly and painful reality of that thing into yourself after another fashion. That it is no longer distant or kept at arm's length to protect you from having to relive it when you're just trying to file your fucking taxes. Instead, to return again to one of my favorite words, that loss has been synthesized. It is transmuted into a fundamental and present part of you and your consciousness in a way that ensures that it will never be diminished, forgotten, or ignored. Rather, it becomes a kind of prism that helps you navigate your experiences in the future. It's like a psycho-spiritual form of judo <laughs> that allows you to use the momentum of that crushing loss against itself as a way to propel you forward. And the catalyst for that experience of channeling loss back into life happened when my wife heard, probably for the 20th time, but truly for the very first, the song Children of the Sea. 
Dio wrote the lyrics after a dream he had in which he was watching some children play together in a pool near his home, and he transformed it into a cry for human unity, regardless of race, class, gender, etc. My wife imagined the song as a description of a place where all the lost children of the world reside when they have failed to reach this one. That somewhere in the misty morning, on the edge of time, was our own lost child. Little Yarmini. <laughs> Whatever, I've come around to it now. Somewhere in a world that we can't see, at home with all the other children of the sea. Still lost to us, but because of Dio's lyricism and the depths of his own emotional experience that is so present in that vocal track, it allowed her to let go of her lost baby. And as a result, it meant that she would always carry them with her into her future life. I wish that I could have met Ronnie James Dio so that I could tell him this story, but I like to think that he has now joined those children playing in that pool. And I also like to think that by telling all of you, in a way, I kind of am telling him. Because like Dio, I also believe in the Jungian model of consciousness, that if you travel into an individual psyche far, far inward and downward, you will eventually arrive at a place of collective consciousness. Within one of us, somewhere, there is all of us. So, thank you. And Ronnie, thank you. But if you don't mind, I have to get back to making fun of you and all your friends now. Also, I ought to say that while I too find solace in my wife's interpretation of the song, I've always heard the ending of the song as a warning about the impending apocalypse humanity will face at the hands of the children of the sea. Ronnie telling you to look out, because shit's coming for you. That the children of the sea are the agents of the universe's final judgment on our unworthiness. And my unborn son is a kind of fifth horseman, seated on high upon a cloud of blood to restore the balance to earth by exacting universal vengeance upon the great parasite of humanity. And just before I am devoured alive by a teeming horde of reanimated corpse, I look up and I see Yarmini wielding like of like badass sword made of lightning or some shit, just long enough to mutter to my fellow soon-to-be-dead brethren, that's my boy. It all kind of goes downhill from there, but what a great last moment, right? Anyway, I'm going to play the rest of the song for you, and you get to make up your own story about it. As always, thanks for listening, but today especially, genuinely, thank you. And without further magoo, here it is, the conclusion to children of the sea. Say
Heaven and Hell was released in the spring of 1980, and as I mentioned after the show break, Black Sabbath was in uncharted waters. The genre that they had invented had survived long enough that a generation of musicians inspired by Sab's early albums, but which also developed late enough to include aspects of punk into their sounds, had begun to carve out new territory in the world of heavy metal. The bands that would come to be known as the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, or NKOTB, that's an episode two callback, were preparing to release records that would give rise to metal's next generation of genre-defining acts, some of which continue to this day over 40 years later. The first, sometimes and sometimes not included in the new wave, were Motorhead, who debuted in 1977, but with their sophomore record Overkill in 1979, Motorhead would kick in the door to the 1980s, then step back for a smoke and watch Iron Maiden ride through with a glimmer of metal ready to strike. Off the back of Judas Priest's flaming Harley that would leave a trail of destruction second to none. Just look at the timeline of the releases preceding Heaven and Hell in April of 1980. Judas Priest's first platinum album in the U.S., British Steel comes out on April 11th. Iron Maiden's debut, which was an immediate commercial and critical success, going to number four in the UK charts and went platinum there as well, comes out three days later on April 14th. Heaven and Hell is then released four days after that on April 18th. Not only are Black Sabbath releasing their first record in the new decade after treading commercial and critical water at best on their two previous albums, with a replacement singer who came from a band of comparatively moderate popularity in the decade before, particularly in the U.S. where not one of Rainbow's three records even garnered silver certification, but now they get thrown into the proverbial grinder of the music industry up against the flashy new hotness of two bands poised to remake heavy metal in their own image for at least the next 10 years. Nothing about the circumstances in which Sabbath now finds themselves bodes well for this band, and seemingly every negative historical trend in the music industry is converging at precisely this moment, pointing directly to April 18, 1980, as the end of Black Sabbath's significance to the very musical movement that they themselves created. Instead, they absolutely fucking crushed it.
Heaven and Hell becomes the third highest selling album in Black Sabbath's discography, behind only Paranoid and Master of Reality. It goes platinum in the US, the first of a few for Ronnie James Dio, and gold in the UK and Canada. It breaks into the top album charts in Scotland, Poland, and New Zealand, pretty much all the lands, in the 40s, the 30s in Finland and Germany, and the 20s in Canada, Norway, Sweden, and the US. But in the UK, Heaven and Hell peaked at number nine, number nine, number nine. Oh, sorry. I think I think it hit loop by accident there. And the album singles Neon Nights and Die Young went to numbers 22 and 41, respectively, in the UK. During the Megadeth series, I talked about bands hanging their great songs on the walls of heavy metal fame as a kind of emblem for their larger discography and the band itself, using Holy Wars from Rust in Peace as an example. Sabbath, considering their unique position in heavy metal history, might be allowed an additional spot in the 80s section. Not to speak to the curator about making some space, just, just take down some bullshit by Saxon. But if so, the title track to Heaven and Hell would almost certainly have to be that song. I know that many of my fellow Sab Rats will argue for Neon Knights, but I have a pretty powerful constituency on my side whose heavy metal boner fetus are pretty unimpeachable. You guessed it, the National Football League. Oh, sorry, for all my international listeners, that's the American equivalent of soccer. But instead of constant action, the game stops every five seconds, and the players actively try to kill themselves for our viewing enjoyment. But some of them don't. They manage to live full, productive lives before the long-term brain injury drives them to annihilate their entire family and then themselves. Fortunately, they've all been well compensated and can afford such a large funeral. <laughs> and you thought my story was going to be the saddest one in the episode. Yeah, a few weeks ago I heard Heaven and Hell on Monday Night Football, a program which typically reserves its musical sound bed for bands like ACDC and ACDC featuring Brian Johnson. It's mostly tracks off of Back in Black, though, as the Bon Scott era is a bit highbrow for an American audience. I was certainly surprised, but it reminded me that this album, and this song in particular, seems to have built something of an enduring cultural relevance. And it's a great lens through which one can track Sabbath's development as a musical entity. It shares a unique position with the title track off of their first album, in that both songs address the influences of cosmic forces on the terrestrial world and its inhabitants. Both also feature pummeling, slow-tempo verses before reaching a crescendo that carries the song into its conclusion, and both are title tracks from the first album featuring a unique lineup acting as a kind of thesis statement for the band's respective eras. While the song Black Sabbath is pure apocalyptic malevolence, wherein the individual is nothing more than a hapless victim to an omnipotent and hellish fate, Heaven and Hell reads more like advice for the individual on navigating the pitfalls of a world chock full of the most dangerous animals of all. No, not hippos with shoulder-mounted rocket launchers, but good guess. I'm talking about man. Dio's brand of insidiousness is less the Lovecraftian gods of old who grind humanity into dust with mindless indifference, but rather the men and women of this world who have co-opted the fantastical forces of the larger universe in order to manipulate and control their fellow earthlings. It's a world filled with kings and queens who blind your eyes and steal your dreams. 
gods and demons don't point their long black fingers to offer a brief vision of the end before sealing humanity's final doom. It is now humanity itself that employs the otherworldly to seduce you into a state of confusion, robbing you of your objectivity through layered veils of untruth. As Dio warns us, if it seems to be real, it's illusion. Because the closer you get to the meaning, the sooner you'll know that you're dreaming. But perhaps the most conspicuous difference is that Black Sabbath, the song, is a masterpiece of simplicity. A long, slow walk down a one-way street toward your fiery descent into eternal damnation. Heaven and Hell is a multi-textured tapestry of twists and turns, bass and guitar riffs that seem to emerge out of nowhere and carry you seamlessly to a place you never expected to go. Heaven and Hell is a testament to Sabbath's maturity. It's not the raw, uncompromising black and white of a decade ago. This band has seen some shit and lived to tell the tale. And that is the story that they are choosing to tell on the title track to their ninth album. While the overwhelming response was resounding enthusiasm, there were and continue to be vehement pockets of resistance to the new path that Ronnie James Dio had clearly set the band on, including from the band's own members. Eee. For Bill Ward, the album itself led him into a state of confusion, saying in 1996, I had no idea what band I was in. I sensed a kind of unrealness about the lyrics. Oof. Wait till we hear Spiral Architect. But Ward's dissatisfaction with the record may have also had something to do with the fact that he was so drunk he doesn't actually remember recording it. 
So I can imagine seeing the third-degree burn scars on his legs from the time that Tony Iommi doused him with cleansing solution and fucking lit him on fire would also add to the growing sense that heaven and hell was not the best of times for him. Also, what the fuck is wrong with these dead-eyed, mumbly-mouthed guitarists setting their bandmates on fire and calling it a prank? Did Iommi and Blackmore take the same adult learning course on how to speak so no one can understand you at your next human barbecue or something? Seriously, what the fuck is in the water over there, guys? And of course, Dio, a man famous for his hand gestures in concert, was receiving plenty of hand gestures in return from some fans, just with fewer fingers and a lot more ag. Crowds would also chant Ozzy between songs as Dio was attempting to address them. In 2022, Wendy Dio talked about the difficulties her late husband faced after taking over vocal duties for Ozzy, saying, It was very hard. He got spat on, and he got booed, and a lot of things in the beginning. Did those people know that they weren't required to attend the concert? Like, if you're mad about a band's lineup change, why would you then go see that band? Did they think Dio would just be one of many singers that night? Because he's gonna be involved in every song, and if you don't like him, it could be kind of a long evening. But Wendy continued, Ozzy's shoes were very hard to fill. He was one of the best frontmen ever. Wasn't a great singer. I mean, <sighs> that was awesome. I mean, Ozzy was an innovator. That music was the start of heavy metal, and I would never put that down. But Ronnie made a difference. He carried on and did his thing. And then I think the kids started to really accept him. But not all the kids. Holdouts included one particularly unpleasant kid, Black Sabbath's manager Don Arden, who after hearing the album demos told the band they needed to get Ozzy back, saying to Iommi at one point, you can't have a midget singing for Black Sabbath. Cool, sounds like a great guy. Iommi, to his credit, ignored Arden and returned to work on the album. So Arden had all the furniture removed from the house the band was staying in, which is maybe why you don't hire an organized crime goon to manage artists. I know everything there is to know about art. Okay, I'm an arty smarty, and I alone can fix Black Sabbath. This record's gonna win all the awards. All the awards, all the big awards. You're gonna get that Emmy, Tony. Tony, I tell you what, Tony, you're gonna get that Emmy. Where are you going? So Iommi dropped Don Arden like he was the name of a celebrity I once worked with. Diane Lane, maybe. Richard Kind. I don't know. Stockard Channing, possibly. Whoever, whatever. That's... Not a big deal for me. And although Sabbath 2.0 had begun to turn the tide in the war against their detractors, the battle for Bill Ward's heart was already lost. Having drunk his way through the death of both parents in a single year and feeling increasingly out of place in the band he founded a little over a decade ago, one night on the Heaven and Hell tour, he called Ronnie James Dio at his hotel room and said simply, I'm off then, Ron. Assuming the call to be just more of Ward's erratic behavior, Dio replied, That's nice, Bill. Where are you going? Ward replied, No, I'm off, mate. I'm at the airport. In 1980, in the middle of the Heaven and Hell tour, Bill Ward left the band he founded over a decade earlier and would not return until Ronnie James Dio had joined him as a former member of Black Sabbath. And on the next and Volume 4 All, we will get into Bill Ward's replacement, Dio's tumultuous exit from the band, and the album that would cement his legacy as one of the greatest frontmen in heavy metal history. Our holy deep dive only gets holier and deeper from here, mother punchers. In the meantime, don't listen to fools, don't talk to strangers, 
and don't show up late. You don't want to be last in line. Because we are coming. Oh, God. How does he do that? How does that little man do that? Oh. On the next and volume for all.